Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everyone. Stucky here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Welcome back once again to this month's Chirp Audiobooks Book Club Pick of the Month. And this month's book was Worlds at War by Anthony Pagden. This is um, this is a big one. I'm saying this right from the beginning, but this was a exceptionally expansive book. It is something that is not only is it a big book itself, but it is a massive topic that is I mean, it made it really difficult for me looking at this in the first place to decide, okay, what is it exactly that I'm going to that I'm going to be talking about here today? Because the premise of this is East versus West. It is a tale. It it is a uh, a dichotomy, if you will, something that is as old as time. The cultural entities of Greece, Christianity and Europe versus Persia, Islam, Asia. The continents, the culture, the ideology, everything. This book goes over all these different cultural points in history from the uh, Greco-Persian Wars, the rise of Islam, the conquest of Constantinople by Ottoman Emperor Mehmed II. There is a deep dive into the investiture controversy of the 11th century, one which if, um, if, 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 you, if you go back and you look at it, right, it even shows scenes where you have Henry IV, who is standing outside of the castle of Canossa, who is in, in his bare shirt, right? He, he is removed of all of his finery after having been excommunicated, and he is begging for forgiveness. He gets forgiven and then immediately goes back and, uh, and, and tries to invade Rome with an army. Honestly, that's, that's what I'd, I'd be like, hey, I'm so sorry. And then they'll be like, cool, you're forgiven. And I'll be like, okay. Anyway, they'll forgive me again if they forgive me once. You have no idea how accurate that statement is to a lot of medieval politics. That's what I'm saying. I'd be an amazing medieval politician and an amazing modern politician. Do you have any idea how many times nobles or whatnot would commit a crime and then it's like they would get punished, but they wouldn't really get punished because they still needed that specific noble for control over their lands? Yeah. And executing them or stripping them of those lands would actually would, screw the people who'd be punishing them so they would never get punished. Yeah, because then all the other nobles would be like, oh no, the king took away their lands. The king could also then take away my lands. 
I don't want that to happen. And then you get more rebellions. It's like, even when you win, you still kind of lose. It's just, (laughs) it's a really messy affair. And this book goes through all of it from Napoleon marching down into Egypt and declaring that it was the will of Allah. Like he was trying to get all the Muslims on his side because it was totally the will of Allah that he was there to the Shah of Iran going and throwing a $200 million party with over 25,000 bottles of champagne. I think that was like during his coronation or something. I don't think I've gotten to that part because I did start the book, but with work being as crazy as it has been, I have not been able to stay on top of it recently. Oh, that's just it. You wouldn't also reach that for a while because this book, again, covers everything. So looking at all this, I tried to think about what to do. And then I remembered something that I have always mentioned. I have said it countless numbers of times when we've been talking about anything with colonialism, Western exploration, imperialism, that the catalyst to all of this was the rise of the Ottoman Empire and the fall of Constantinople and the Byzantines in 1453. I've said that a lot. I've said that a lot when it came to anything regarding trade, anything regarding any of the exploration, anything. Because from that moment, the competition between East and West was going to be closer than it ever was before. But not only that, but it was simultaneously going to grow to become a more global scale, something that had never before been seen in history. So on today's episode, I wanted to talk about the fall of Constantinople and all of the juicy details that are involved in that because we're talking about something that I find to be exciting. I love sieges. I love these stories, but... um. They can get really brutal, and it is during times of sieges that you see some of the most innovative stuff happen. The only thing I remember from my sixth grade history class is Constantinople became Istanbul, yes. which became Constantinople again, or did I have that reverse? No, kind of, but fun fact, because it was part of a song, Constant, oh, wait, why can I not remember it? Now? Istanbul, Constantinople. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking yeah, about here. everybody knows. Funny detail in here, uh, for the longest time, it was not actually called Istanbul. It did not, I think, officially become Istanbul until the 1930s. Before that, the actual name for the city was Constantinie, which is just like the Turkish variant of Constantinople. You're joking. No, that whole Istanbul came from the Greek idea of it. It is. I can't remember how it is. Something, something polis, which literally like the pole part, which means to go to the city. Listen. I'm actually deeply hurt because my textbook, which still sits on your bookshelf, like my sixth grade textbook, it's called Eastern Hemisphere. Specifically said it was Istanbul, Constantinople, Istanbul. Did did they lie to me? No, no, it did become it. It's just the the name for Istanbul was the colloquial name. It wasn't officially Istanbul until much later in its history. But everyone inside of it was calling it Istanbul, pretty much, even though the official name was still Constantini. Interesting. So that's that's just what it was. Well, that's a fun little tidbit. Yep. So to start this, the city of Constantinople, which is modern day Istanbul in Turkey, this was founded by Roman Emperor Constantine I in 324 AD. And this would act as the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, or as it would later be called the Byzantine Empire, or rather, I say as it was called, it was as historians would later call it. And it would be the capital for over a thousand years. Although the city would time and time again suffer many different attacks, they would suffer sieges, internal rebellions, and even a period of occupation in the 13th century AD 
by the Fourth Crusade. Which that is a whole other crazy tale right there. If you haven't gone back and listened to the episode that we previously did on the Crusades, you should check it out. Besides that point, the legendary defenses of this city were arguably some of the most formidable in the ancient and medieval world. For many looking at this city, it arguably could have been called impenetrable. Yes, at different points, it was actually taken over. That was something that happened. But for the majority of its history, its strength was unrivaled, and it really had that reputation. Constantinople withstood any number of sieges and attacks over the centuries. Uh, let's see, the Arabs went and attacked it many, many different times uh, in like 674 going to 678, again in 717 all the way through 718. The Bulgars went and attacked it multiple times, which the Bulgars, in case you're confused, this is the tribe that would go on to form the Bulgarians. Like, that's where they came from. Um, the Rus, which were the descendants of the Vikings that went on to form Kievan Rus and then Russia, attacked it in 860, 941, and 1043, but every single one failed. There were many, many more attacks. And yet every single one of them would fail because of the city's location by the sea. It had an insanely strong naval fleet. It had the secret weapon of Greek fire that only they could produce, which was a highly flammable liquid. And most importantly of all, it had the amazing protection of something called the Theodosian walls. Gabby, have you ever seen a picture of these walls? Like, do you know what it is that I'm talking about? I have no idea. No, I have not seen them. Okay. For anyone that is listening to this podcast right now, go and look them up as I am describing this. Just like if you're listening to this on your phone, go and just look it up. Look up the Theodosian Walls. Because Theodosian Walls. Yeah. That's spelled S-I-A-N? T-H-E-O-D-O-S-I-A-N Walls. I got a picture of it right here, actually. Check this out. Oh. Yeah, I, I put it into the notes so that you'd be so able to see it. is bigger or smaller than the Great Wall of China? Uh, well, it's definitely smaller in terms of scale because th there's a reason why they put this here and I'll explain it, but the walls were way better defenses than the Great Wall. They're very pretty. Were. Yeah, because the Theodosian Wall was not that. Well, it wasn't the Theodosian Wall. It wasn't wall. one wall. It was the walls. Yeah. Yes, because it, it was three layers deep. Well, I can see that because there's the front wall, which is a little bit smaller, the really big back wall, and then there's a bunch of like fortresses almost. Yes. I'm going to explain the structure of this because they are... There's a reason why the city was almost never taken for a thousand years, essentially. Because of those walls? Because of those walls. I mean, okay, I'm going to build a The walls were made in the seventh century, right? Or is it the eighth century? No, no, no. Okay, no. I know I have it in the notes here. I Just, just explain it. They, they were around for a long go. time. Okay, just go. Okay. So these walls were a triple row fortification, as you saw. And it was built back during the reign of Theodosius. And that was... Okay, it was the 5th century. That's which one it was. So these things are built back in the 5th century. They last for a thousand years, and it would protect the land side of the peninsula that would occupy the city. Because if you've ever seen Constantinople and what it is, and you've seen the strait, you know how it looks like a tiny little, um, like a, a very sharply thin triangle that juts out into the sea? So the wall is built along the coastline of it, it doesn't have to defend much in terms of land because it's only defending one side because it's a peninsula. So they only have to cover one side of the actual land with wall and everything else has the ocean 
around it. What if I took a really big ship and just pulled up? What are they going to do? They had chains protecting the ocean. They had. So if you pulled up with the ship, the ships would get wrecked on the chains. So they thought of everything. Oh, they did so much here. This would extend across the peninsula to the shores from the Sea of Marmara to the Golden Horn and eventually was completed in 439, stretching some 6.5 kilometers. Attackers would first face a 20 meter wide and 7 meter deep ditch. So not even the walls first. In front of the walls was a ditch that could then be flooded with water that was fed from pipes when it was required. Behind that, there was an outer wall which had a patrol track that would oversee the moat so you could fire down missiles onto anyone that was trying to cross the moat. And then behind this was a second wall which had regular towers and an interior terrace so as to provide a, a firing platform in order to shoot down on enemy attacking forces that were going after the moat and the first wall. And then behind that wall was a third and way more massive inner wall. It just kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That final defensive line was almost five meters thick, 12 meters high, with 96 towers on top of it. Each tower being placed around 70 meters distant from the other, reaching a height of 20 meters and either square or octagonal, they could hold up to three artillery machines on each one. Whether it was a ballistae, a catapult, any number of things like that, you could have any number of machinery, like machine pieces on there. And the towers on the top wall were spaced every so often so that the middle wall of the second row was not blocked. This way, they could, it created a killing zone in between each and every single one that they could constantly fire and not block the other one. The distance between that outer ditch and the inner wall was 60 meters, while the height difference was 30 meters. So the enemy not only has to take each wall, but as they're going, they have to continuously climb it further and further and further. Oh, wait, did you find your book? <laughs> I did. I told you, I keep this textbook on the, uh, why are you interrupting this? <laughs> no, because I'm curious. Like you pulled out the book now and you're pointing it at I me. I was just reading it for personal pleasure. Yeah, I found my sixth grade history textbook that I keep in your office at all times, just so that I can kind of keep up with what you're talking about on the podcast. You found the exact section here. That's so cool. That's so, so every cool. time we pick a topic that is kind of like in the Eastern Hemisphere, this book covers it. Like it covers every <laughs> single crusade. You name it. This book saves my life. Keeps me from sounding like a dumbass. <laughs> oh, man. So to take Constantinople, an army would first need to attack by land and sea. You would have to attack by both because if you just attacked by land, you weren't going to be able to just penetrate the walls. If you, or you could, but technically speaking, but it was going to be ridiculously hard. If you tried to starve the enemy out, that wasn't going to work because they had immediate sea access and could just leave with their boats, go get more food and stuff and return back to the city. It wasn't going to work. Every single attempt to take Constantinople would fail, no matter what weapons, no matter what siege engines would be launched at the city, anything. Constantinople was the greatest defensive point in the entire medieval world. It was arguably impregnable well okay of course not quite after 800 years of resisting everything 
The city's defenses were finally breached by the Knights of the Fourth Crusade in 1204, though the attackers got in at this time because something really stupid happened. Someone accidentally left a door open. I know you're looking at me like, yes, I understand that they left a door open. It wasn't because anyone got through the city. It wasn't because they tricked anyone. It's because, no, someone actually just left a door open. It's literally, if you existed in this time. Wait a minute. Wait. It would be you. You would be the dude who's like, wait oh, a minute. Oh, Stephen, did you lock the door? Yeah, 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 yeah. The gate's completely locked. Okay, thanks, man. Ten minutes later, they just open it. Walk in, marched. Everybody's dead. And it'd be like, oh, man, I could have sworn I locked that door. Sorry, that was a lot of anger. Wow. That was a lot of anger. I was bottling that up for quite a while. Uh-huh. I'm not uh-huh. going to lie. You have never locked a door in your life. So it would be you. Uh-huh. If it would be anyone, you can't even judge this person. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, the fortification fell, but that's a you thing to do. Like, absolutely. You can't even be mad. You're looking at me all coy right now, okay? But I can certainly be mad in that scenario. <laughs> But like, again, remember when we did that whole episode on the Fourth Crusade as part of the bigger series on the Crusades? If anyone has not listened to that, they want to hear that full story, go back and do so, because that is a very wild ride. So these walls then get repaired and rebuilt by Michael VIII in 1260. And the city would remain, after that point, still the most difficult fortress to possibly try and break through in the world. But that reputation was not going to stop the Ottomans because when they entered the stage, they had dreams of glory and empire. And the only real obstacle that was in their way to unite their holding and cement their place in the world was Constantinople. First, we're going to need to provide a little bit of context for this. But before we do that, it's time for an ad break. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And we're back. Okay, so as I said, first, a little context. When we're talking about the Ottomans, we have to go first back a little bit further to the 11th century when you had the Seljuk Turks, which this is a people from the Asian steppe who had accepted the Sunni version of Islam and they swept over Persia. They attacked all the eastern territories and then they advanced towards Anatolia. There, they would gradually take over everything dealing with the forces of the Byzantine Empire after completely crushing them near Manzikert in 1071. That right there, that battle is one of the things that is oftentimes debated when it comes to alternate versions of history, like how would history look different if certain things had happened. The Battle of Manzikert is one of the most defining moments because the Byzantine Empire was gradually kind of making a comeback up at that point, and then Manzikert completely crushed them completely destroyed them, allowing different Turkic tribes to move in and settle the region, driving the Byzantines out. By the end of the 13th century, the various Anatolian Beyliks, which what this is, is um, the different petty kingdoms, because it wasn't just one united people. You had all these different tribes that were serving these different petty 
kings that were essentially independent and feuding against one another. One of these was a dude by the name of Osman, who was the Bey of Bithynia, which is a region that is on the west side near the Sea of Marmara. And he started a war with the Byzantine Empire and over time would expand his domain, taking over more and more territory, laying siege to Prussia, not taking it. But after he died, then it fell in 1326. His descendants would then go and take over even more territory in Anatolian Europe, taking over almost all of the Balkans by the close of the 14th century. Time and time again, the Europeans would try to drive them out, but each time they would fail. Whether it was the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, whether it was Nicopolis in 1396, the Turks would crush them over and over again. It wasn't actually until another force arrived out of the east, something that was the Timurids. I remember you didn't exactly, uh, you didn't do this episode with me. It's one of the patron exclusives ones. But I did a episode on the Timurid Empire, Gabby. And, you know, the Ottomans got absolutely crushed in that. Timur, that Turkic Mongol leader, would crush them in 1402. And the Ottomans were not only defeated, but their sultan, their leader, Bayezid I, was captured. Despite that happening, and the Ottoman Empire, at that point in its history, being on arguably the verge of collapse, it was the most vulnerable that it would probably ever be. The Western powers surrounding it did not exploit this. And so after a civil war and a period that was known as the Ottoman Interregnum, where basically that meant no one was ruling. It was a period in which there would just be like regents. Mehmed I, who was a son of Bayezid, emerged victorious as the leader of the Ottoman Empire, unified it. He restored its borders to what it was prior to the Battle of Ankara. And over the years, the Ottomans would gradually consolidate their position and expand across Anatolia and the Balkans until Constantinople was surrounded on all sides. When you say the Western powers failed to exploit this opportunity, what does that like? They just didn't notice that it was on the brink of collapse. Oh, uh, they they knew they they well they're not exactly on the brink of collapse, but they saw that there was chaos. But they had their own internal affairs to to see to. So one of the things that would occur later on, fourteen forty three, I believe, or fourteen forty four. I'm drawing a blank on this, but there would be another crusade that would be led against the Ottomans by a united Christian force that initially would see success, but then was ultimately completely crushed. The, I can't, why can I not remember the name of it? The guy who was heading all of it, but the guy who was heading it, and he was the king of uh, like Poland, Lithuania, Bohemia. Uh, like he, he, he ruled a lot of territory and led this massive Christian alliance coming in. And they lost, was it the Battle of Varna? I think that's what it was, the Battle of Varna. And it, it, it didn't work. That was 40 years later when the Ottomans were significantly stronger. If the Christian powers had aligned themselves and launched a crusade prior to that, they likely would have been able to, if not destroy the Ottomans, because I doubt they would have just completely knocked them out, they could have maintained a much greater degree of control over the Balkans. That did not happen, though. That was lucky, I guess, from whoever's perspective you're looking at it. Oh, for the Ottomans that they were able to consolidate after that position. So they take back all that territory, which in turn means that the only thing left for them to take is Constantinople. And remember what I talked about with the Battle of Varna before? 
Yeah. So in 1444, and I see that here in the notes, that's when it happened. So 1444, the Battle of Varna occurs and the European forces get crushed. In that now, the Byzantines were completely on their own. There was no going to be any European powers that were going to be able to come in and help them. No significant help was going to come from the West. The Pope was not willing at all to do anything significant to help the Byzantines because the whole difference between the Western like Latin church and the Greek Orthodox church was something that like he wanted the, the Greek Orthodox church to basically submit to him, to submit to the papacy. And they're like, nah, nah, we're not going to do that. So he ultimately sent a little help, but didn't, didn't send much at all. The Venetians at least would send two ships along with 800 men in April of 1453. And Genoa would promise another ship and the Pope would also eventually send five armed ships. But by the point that they did any of this, sent any kind of help, the Ottomans had already blockaded Constantinople. The people inside of the city could only at this point stock up on food and weapons and hope that their defenses would be able to save them again. The defending army, and this is where things get crazy, was composed of only 5,000 men. The city was a shell of what it was. It may have been grand, but the actual Byzantine Empire, the territory that they controlled at this point, was non-existent in comparison to what they were, had before. The city of Constantinople was surrounded on all sides by Ottoman territory. There was nothing else. This was all that they could muster. It was so bad that the, those 5,000 men that they had, they didn't even have enough men to man every single section of the city's walls. Yeah, no, I can see your face in here. But they weren't big walls. It was at that point because the city had expanded and the walls would gradually grow 19 kilometers in length. That's not that much, right? Yeah, but 5,000 men spread over all of it. You can't spread them too thin because what happens is... The, oh, they only had less, they had less than 5,000. Yeah, so they get broken through in one part and you have no reinforcements they to send like, anything. Uh, draft some men? They did. They did whatever they could and it gets worse for the city's inhabitants later. And We'll talk about that. How could it possibly get worse? Uh, the women and children would also serve. Oh, they drafted them. I mean, honestly, yeah. what is that called in Hoyforce? Scraping the barrel? Yeah, pretty much. They did what they had to do. Yep. And worse still now, that proud Byzantine Navy, the thing that had saved them time and time again, only had 26 ships. And those 26 ships... What happened ships, to the other ships? They gradually fell out of repair. They were destroyed. They just didn't have the funds or resources or anything to build or get more. They didn't. And most of those ships did not even belong to the Byzantine Navy. They were owned by Italian colonists that lived inside of the city. At this point, the Byzantines were outnumbered in men, in ships, in weapons, in everything. But that all being said, they firmly believed that divine intervention would come their way, just as it had done time and time again. And now for an ad break. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. 
Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. And we're back. So at this point, the only things that can save the Byzantine Empire is some kind of miracle, essentially. Luck and the grace of God. But, but it had happened before, multiple times, and so they believed it was indeed possible that they were going to be able to be, uh, to be saved. Then again, of course, uh, there were also all different kinds of ominous tales and prophecies that proclaimed that the fall of Constantinople would only occur when the emperor was called Constantine. Like, there was literally a prophecy that said the city would fall when the emperor was named Constantine. You know what the funny part about all this is, Gabby? What part of this could even be a smidge funny? It's Constantine was the Byzantine equivalent of calling a, a French king Louis or, <laughs> or an English king Henry or anything like that. Do you have any idea how many Constantines there were? There were a lot. The I'm going to guess who- 10. The guy who seven to ten close. The guy who was in charge of this at the time was Constantine the eleventh. Eleven. Yeah, the Byzantine. Were they just born and they're like, well, I guess you're Constantine the second, and then the next, the dad is like, I guess you're Constantine the third. Did they just? Is that what they did? I mean, remember how we had Louis the sixteenth and everything? There's a lot more. I kind of want like a Stephen, so we have to adopt a son, and we're gonna call him Stephen the second. But then the stipulation that he's going to have for us to pay for his college is he has to name his son, Stephen III. And we'll just keep it going. With like a constant stream of bribery. I'm for this, but simultaneously feel really weirded out about that situation and idea. I mean, would you name your kid after your dad if he paid for your college? Yes. Please, Joy, I could be Roberta the second, first. Yeah, but the funny part is, in that situation, it would be naming after both of our fathers, since both of our fathers' oh, names are Robert. That would be so cool. None of them paid for our college, though, so they really fumble. I mean, my parents did, and, you know, I mean, your my parents, parents contributed to a degree. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, our parents like, we still got for- loans, but we, they, they helped us some. <laughs> we still got, like, 30,000 each in loans. I know. Ouch. Welcome to life in the U.S. for anyone who is living outside no, of the U.S. welcome to life of non-rich parents. Hate that for us. <laughs> so... There's all these two uh, tales about doom and prophecy and all the stuff. And the leader is named Constantine the 11th. The thing about this guy is he genuinely was pretty impressive as a warrior king. He personally would take charge of defenses along the castle walls, uh, along with a bunch of other military figures. People like uh, Lucas Notares, the Cantacuzenos. Uh, is that how I would say the name? There was all these different figures. It was these brothers, uh, Nikephoros, Pelagos. Uh, there's this Genoese siege expert by the name of Giovanni uh, Gistiani. The Byzantines were loaded with talent, even if they didn't have numbers. They had catapults. They had Greek fire. They had all different kinds of tech and things at their disposal. But technology at that point had moved a little bit beyond what they had been using before. So, Gabby, think about this. The Theodosian Walls had been built back in the 5th century, right? They were around for over a thousand years. Do you know what weapon was starting to appear and become a little bit more common on the battlefield and was uh, highly developed by the Ottoman Empire 
to be a thing that could crush sieges? The weapon that can crush sieges against the Theodosian Wall. Yeah. Something that can shoot a catapult, a well, trebuchet. We, we, we already talked about those. Something stronger. Yeah. Did they invent cannons? Kind of. Kind of. There was a special. Okay, we're going to get into the story here. There was, um, they developed a type of cannon, but it wasn't them specifically. They bought the cannon. People think that the Ottomans invented the cannon. No, they just had the money, power, and resources to buy the cannons and develop them and use them in a way that was significantly better than the other powers around them. They created things called bombards. I think I've used those in Civ 5. Yeah. Do you know what a, the difference between a bombard is and a cannon? Like they are, they, a bombard is a type of cannon, but it differentiates it with something very specific. That a is, bomb? Well, it does have to do with the ammunition. So you are close in that regard. So they launch something that explodes but, upon impact. No. Which would have been it, so cool. Exact opposite. They launch a rock. They launch a rock. So think on this. A cannon, typically speaking, is going to fire a iron projectile uh, that is, you know, it, it's iron, so it's dense and it's very heavy, right? A bombard fired massive stone projectiles, like stone balls. How did they make a ball out of stone? You ever seen those videos where they like shape and polish stones into circles? No, we watch very different types of videos. You never come across those videos while Not you're on like even, YouTube or TikTok no, or anything like that and no. it just appears no every single video that has ever come across your for you page has, i can guarantee has never come across mine okay fine. guarantee but a bombard fires these massive projectiles i think one, the one that was fired out of the uh the bombard that they used weighed like 500 kilograms so a giant or 500 so. kilograms stone yeah love that for them yeah did it break Walls? Oh yeah, yeah. But the, there was a big weakness when it came to those, and we're gonna t we're gonna talk about. If it. I could time travel back to this time, I would get them to put something explosive in the rock. They, Game over. They, it's like playing on like, you know, twenty twenty three mode. Twenty twenty three mode. Twenty twenty three mode. They do develop stuff like that later on, which we definitely can talk about. But that's something that they did. Absolutely. So they're using this stuff. But Mehmed II brings in these massive cannons. The ironic part about all of it is that they weren't going to go to the Ottomans first. The guy who invented the bombard that the Ottomans would use was a Hungarian engineer by the name of Urban. But Constantine couldn't pay the price that he asked for his cannon. So Urban then turned around and sold his cannons to the Ottomans. And Mehmed was so interested in this that he reportedly paid four times the price that Urban had offered. Which is a lot. Basically guaranteeing his loyalty and service. And these weapons would then be put into use on November of 1452 when a Venetian ship that was disobeying a ban on traffic was then blown out of the water as it sailed down the Bosphorus. The captain of the vessel would survive, but was then captured, decapitated, and had his head impaled on a stake. More was going to happen after this, and it's only going like to get more literally brutal. on a stake. Oh yeah, like on a stake. We're not talking so about they, a slab. They of didn't. Meat. They didn't just jokingly do that. Like, haha, I'm going to put your head on a pike. They they actually did it. Oh no, no, they 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 absolutely did it. They absolutely yeah. did it in a horrifying degree, and way more was going to happen as time goes on. Cool. You see, the invading Turkish army that was going to be attacking here 
was composed of a force that was anywhere between 60 to 80,000 men, easily 10 times the amount of the defenders. Because remember, we're talking about maybe 5,000 men are defending this point. Considering a siege, you typically need around three to four times as many attackers as defenders in order to be able to breach it. So 10 times the numbers is a lot. That is overwhelmingly in favor of the Ottomans. And when the army finally assembled at the city walls of Constantinople on the 2nd of April, 1453, the Byzantines finally got to look at these cannons. The largest of these was huge. It was nine meters long, with the mouth of the cannon being one meter across. When it was, fi when it was fired, this thing could fire a ball weighing 500 kilograms over a kilometer and a half. This cannon was so massive that it took such a huge, stupid amount of time to cool. This thing could only be fired seven times over the course of one day. Seven. Seven times. Seven. Yes. So essentially what would happen is you would wake up at 7 a.m. in the morning. Of course. You'd fire the cannon at the walls. Of course. It would obliterate that section of the wall that you were firing it at. Good for me. And then you had to wait about three hours before you could fire it again. That sounds really boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem was this thing used, it was so powerful. It was so unwieldy that it took forever to set it back up again to fire. What happened if you didn't let it cool? Well, that could destroy the cannon. If the oh. metal got too hot and you fired it, it could completely rupture. That's one of the big weaknesses of cannons. Well, I didn't know that. Gabby, do you know that if you were firing a machine gun and you just continuously fire it, the barrel of it will eventually get so hot that it will melt? They mean every single video game I've ever played has been completely inaccurate? This is one of the reasons why machine guns are fired in bursts. You don't fire them continuously. This was a, a very famous thing that would happen with uh, the MG42, a.k.a. Hitler's buzzsaw. Do you remember my favorite gun in Destiny? Which is like that Tommy something gun that I got from a quest and I can only fire it in like bursts. And if I kept firing, it would burn my hand and I would take damage. Yeah. It was like that. It so was it's like realistic. That. Yeah, actually it is. I was so mad. I was like, who makes a gun like this? That's literally That's how guns funny. would work. Yeah. So that would happen. Um, now that all being said, so what would end up happening? And this is why people talk about how that cannon was awesome, but it wasn't necessarily all that amazing because once they fired it and it destroyed a section of the wall, by the time that they were able to fire the wall, uh, the cannon again, the wall was repaired. How are they repairing this wall that quick? I mean, over the course of three hours, you take whatever dirt, whatever rubble, whatever bricks, anything that you possibly have, and you just throw it on there. Yeah, but how sturdy would that even be? Well, funnily enough, uh, it actually resisted the cannon fire better. You're joking. No, 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 no. So here's the funny part. Here's the funny part. And I, I really love this whole detail when it comes into siege. Just a little side note for anyone that's curious about this. Do you ever notice how castle walls stopped being straight up and down, basically, like in fortresses? And if you've ever seen any of those, remember like the Spanish forts, if you remember on Trinidad, remember how the walls were kind of sloped like this? Yeah. The reason why they did that is to deflect cannon fire. If it was straight up and down, if the ball hits It'll it, hit it just with the impact. full force. Yeah. So when you use softer material, like in the case of wood and dirt and other stuff, it and just you packed it, up, it in more. Yes. Yeah, so it wouldn't crumble like the it stone wall. It absorbed the shock That better. is so funny. Mm-hmm. 
So all those rocks, the barrels, the anything else they could get their hands on when they piled up this rubble, ironically, that rubble held up better to cannon fire than the fixed walls did. My question is, did they just get a bunch of these cannons and then they can just put like seven and then point them at the same spot? Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually. So they had a couple of those big cannons, right? And then they had many, many, many other smaller cannons. So if the 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 bombard was capable of firing seven times a day, some of the other cannons they had were much smaller and lighter and could fire a hundred times in a day. Like a lot. So you could continuously pepper onto a location. And the problem was, even if that pile of rubble absorbed a lot of the shock initially, it still is going to take some damage. And then those are gaps that can be exploited by infantry and assaults. And this onslaught would effectively go on for weeks, for around six weeks, with some effective resistance. Like the Ottoman attacks were not going to be successful. Um, they attacked the boom, which is something it, I, it's a really funny name. I love how it's called the boom, but this is the thing that blocked the city's harbor so that enemy ships couldn't get in. This was repelled as so well as was the boom, the chain you talked of earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's the whole defensive fortification here that protects and blocks the harbor from enemy ships to be able to get in. Okay. And so th- that was, that was protected. Uh, simultaneously, several direct assaults on the land walls themselves failed. On the 20th of April, three Genoese ships that were sent by the Pope and a ship that was carrying vital grain that was sent by uh, Alfonso of Aragon managed to break through the Ottoman naval blockade and reach to the defenders, giving them food. So instead of being starved out, now they had a resupply, which was awesome for them. How did they get around them? Well, they broke through the blockade and How then do you the chain- break through the blockade. You Obviously, through. they weren't blockading so, enough. So exactly. But the ships can't fill every single gap. So if you have a small, light, fast ship, you can run past it. This is why you have blockade runners as a type of ship, because they can't. Well, guard I didn't everything. know they exist. And if you go in at night, they lower the chain. The your ships get in. You raise the chain again. Stop it. That makes a lot Boom. of sense. Mehmet was so angry from this. He was so infuriated that he managed to get around the harbor boom by building a kind of railed road in which 70 of his ships that were loaded onto carts, like these massive, huge carts pulled by oxen, could then be launched over land into the waters of the Golden Horn. So they literally said, screw it, and went around the, the water with their ships. They I don't know their, how to feel about they that. They took their ships on land and went around the waterway. So that they could get around. It just screams desperate to me. They were. They really needed to get past it. I know they needed to get past it, but come on. Well, it worked. And better yet, from them doing this, the Ottomans were then able to build a kind of pontoon, like a floating battery that allowed them to fix cannons to it so that they could fire from the water and attack any part of the city from the seaside. And that's bad because there's no walls along the seaside, right? They did have walls, but the walls were significantly lighter way, way, way thinner, way less prepared. And now that they were being attacked from the ocean, remember those 5,000 men that they had that couldn't even fit on the wall on one side? Those now had to be split further to defend both land and the sea wall. How are they defending against cannons? Please, this... Because if they launched any assaults from the sea, you now had to split up your men further and have it on the other side. I know, but if they're shooting cannons at those men, now you're losing... 
men and you only have 5,000. They also had their own cannons and stuff to fire back, just significantly fewer. And they were also using catapults and other stuff to try and try and hit the ship. I am literally so stressed right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's what happened. So time was running out. Things were not going well for the city and it only seemed to be getting worse. But then amazingly enough, a reprieve happened. Constantinople was almost saved because back in Asia Minor, Mehmed would face several revolts from his subjects. People started to rise up against him and become unruly because the Sultan and his army were abroad and they saw this as a perfect time to rise up. When this happened, Mehmed offered Constantine a deal. Basically, it went like, pay tribute and he would withdraw. It would turn Constantinople and the Byzantines into a vassal state that they would control, but they would live and it would, it would stop. It was going to be over. The emperor refused. And Mehmed then gave the news to his men that when the city fell, because they had refused, this means that his men would now be allowed to plunder whatever they wished from what was at the time arguably one of the richest cities in the entire world. And his men were now ready for blood. But before we get into that, time for an ad break. And we're back. All right, so Mehmed then, after giving this speech to his men, I, I, I don't even know what to call it a speech, but basically he tells his men that they can do whatever they want. They can plunder, they can burn, they can do many other no-no things that invading armies do when they go and attack a city. So he launches then a all-out attack, an all-out assault, a throwing everything that he has got at the city kind of maneuver on the 29th of May. The first to be sent in are the usual light forces with supporting cannon fire. Uh, these are being sent with his second-rate troops, the ones that are not nearly as good, but they're the ones that are going to try and soften up and tire out the defenders. The second wave is then launched with better armed troops, and finally, a third wave is launched with his elite forces, the Janissaries, the well-trained and highly determined elite of his army. And it was during this third wave that disaster would strike for the Byzantines, who by this point, as I talked about earlier, were being forced to employ women and children to defend the walls. Someone had left a gate open. Just like what happened with the Fourth Crusade, the Kerkoportha gate in the land wall was open, and the Janissaries, upon finding it, stormed inside. They climbed to the top of the wall, they raised the Ottoman flag, and then they worked their way around to the main gate and allowed their comrades to flood into the city. What is it for these people? I'm leaving. It was just an army of Stevens. To be I'm fair, convinced. Hey, to be fair, at this to point. To be fair. To be fair, they didn't really have many people anymore. I, that, that is all the more reason to lock the door. Did you ever think that the person in charge who, who was supposed to be managing the, the gate might, might be dead? Because they, that very well could be. A lot of people died during and that. And nobody else was like, hey, I wonder if all our gates are locked. Personally, I would not rest. I would make sure every door was locked at all times of all day. Well, the short of it is that it didn't work out in the scenario. Uh, what followed was chaos, chaos and destruction with some of the defenders trying to maintain degrees of discipline and control things along the wall and defend against the enemy. Others were like, crap, no, we have to get back inside and defend the city and defend their homes because they all have their own families and other stuff inside. So they rush back inside, which just leaves more and more gaps in the wall. Personally, I would have just ran away. Yeah, that some people would try. It wouldn't really work. 
It's at this point then Constantine, the emperor, gets killed in action. You're oh. choking. Which nope. Constantine? 15? No, the 11th. It's that same guy. In fact, this is where I say this is. Was where, he the last Constantine? Yeah. Aww. History history regards him as a like very unlucky because the dude. I I will give him props to this. He didn't sell out the city. He didn't try to blindly escape himself. He didn't try to do anything. His stance was screw all of you. I'm going to fight and die and defend this last stronghold of the empire. We will go out in the blaze of glory. And they did. But the blaze and glory also meant consuming the lives of the men, women, and children of the city into horrible, horrible suffering. Yeah, it, it does not go well. He most likely died near the gate of St. Romanos, though we w- aren't exactly able to confirm that because there everybody was, died. Everyone pretty much died. And there wasn't any indication on the bodies as to what they were marked as. He didn't have any of his royal insignia or anything on him because he didn't want his body to be taken then and used as a trophy. So we don't know. It is possible from this that the emperor could have actually fled the city days before. Or he could have been there with the city. There were all these rumors floating about that. Oh, no, he hadn't actually died. He was outside of the city and he was raising an army to retake it and reclaim the glory of the empire and yada, yada, yada. No, that never happened. And he 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 died. He died defending it more than likely. Like, that's just what occurred. Meanwhile, the. Destruction. The pillaging. And I mean, the, the term when, when sieging one of these cities, we, we talked about like the rape of Nanking. That is an accurate way to describe what it is that happened to Constantinople at this point. What is the psychology behind that? You take a city and your first action is to rape people. Yeah. Yeah. So why would they even? So, oh, they were probably away from their wives for so long. Obviously, they were pent up. Well, there's that and also anger. Where are their wives? Anger, frustration, a willingness and desire to inflict pain and suffering and retribution upon this enemy that had been holding out and bleeding out for so long. Because you got to think, the, the Byzantines probably took out way more of the Ottomans than the Ottomans took out of the Byzantines for actual soldiers in the beginning. 5,000 so men could that's kill. That's their therapy? Yes, is to literally burn and destroy. And what happened here in this scenario, remember what I said, because they refused, Mehmed gave the order that they were allowed to do whatever they wanted. And one of the reasons why such wanton plundering and everything could occur after is because a city would see what would happen to that. Like, oh, this city resisted. They did this and the order was given. Um, We should just go ahead and give up so the same thing doesn't happen to us. It was a terror tactic. The Mongols did stuff like that time and time again. It's horrible. It's awful. I can see the look of disgust in your face, but that it's is not history. Disgust. It's I'm horrified. Yeah. A whole bunch of citizens within Constantinople just committed suicide rather than be captured. Understandably. Because what then happened is around 4,000 people were likely just killed outright. With the remaining 50,000 then shipped off as slaves. Many would try and seek refuge in the city's churches. They would barricade themselves inside of places like the Hagia Sophia. But there's a problem with this. Gabby, in the older Christian world, and really any kind of case in history, do you know where 
a lot of riches and wealth is stored within medieval and ancient societies? I'm assuming in the castle. Well, castles and church. church. So all these people that thought that they could hide in the church and that they would be fine. The churches were some of the first targets. For people. Also, it's a different religion. Why did they think they could hide in the churches and be fine? Divine intervention. And also, it was the only place that they could think of to go. The church. You know, the church. Not even kidding. I would have been in the water, bro. Who's yeah. coming out there to look for me? You're a lot smarter in that scenario, but that's what would happen. Um, so people sought refuge there. And then what ended up happening is that uh, soldiers broke in looking for treasures. And after looting there for gems and precious metals, the buildings, the people inside, the icons, everything was smashed and burned and the captives were butchered. So many art treasures, so many books, so many things from Constantinople, some of the oldest artifacts in the world were destroyed. Anything that bared some kind of Christian message at this point was hacked to pieces. It was time to completely ruin it. That afternoon, Mehmed, once he came into the city and saw what was going on, he ordered a stop to the pillaging because his men had had their fill at this point. Now was a time to go and take control of things and not let it spiral out of control further than it already had. He ordered that the Hagia Sophia immediately be converted into a mosque. And this was going to be the powerful statement that the city's role as the arguable bastion of Christianity for the East for 12 centuries was over. Okay. Now was the time for Islam. It had taken the great stronghold of Christianity. The Hagia Sophia, I remember in Paris, two people were arguing over whether it was uh, Muslim or Christian. Do you remember that? Yeah. And that was so entertaining to me. They were both going at it, and I'm like, technically it's both. Yeah, go on. it's just that's the history. That's the history. Well, I think the argument at the time was that the students were arguing that, oh, it was built by the Muslims, which it wasn't. Oh, yeah, that was the thing. Because they said, oh, no, it had always had been. No, they didn't know what the history of it was before. These are the things that happen. I mean, hell, you got to remember, in the case of Christianity, a lot of uh, different pagan temples and whatnot to uh, to different gods were destroyed, burned down. And then upon their foundation were built Christian churches. They did that all over the place. The Spanish did that all across the Americas with, uh, with Mayan and Aztec temples. So it's really common to conquer the temple of another god? Yes. Interesting. Conquer the religion, conquer the people. That's the purpose. That it's a huge psychological tool in history. Interesting. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So Mehmed then goes and he rounds up the majority of the leftover survivors. And any of the city's nobility that was there, he then had executed. No one was going to challenge his authority or rule there. Constantinople had fallen. And at this point, all that was left was, I'm not going to say rubble, but it was now a shadow of what it had been. So you're going to look at this point and you're going to wonder, well, all right, the, city, the siege is over. Everything is destroyed. What is the aftermath? Well, we've talked about that before, but now we're able to go into a bit more detail because the fall of the city would have huge global implications. Before we get into that, it's time for an ad break. And we're back. So the aftermath of Constantinople, it has fallen. What does this mean for the world? Well, it's, it's huge. 
the fall of Constantinople created this massive power vacuum. We're talking about the fall of the Byzantine Empire, the last vestiges of the Roman Empire. With the fall of Constantinople, this means that the world was now haunted by the memory, the ghost of what Rome had been. All of that was over. Rome was the universal authority. It was, it was the entity, it was the idea that empires based themselves off of. It was the archetype of what they adhered to. Th like, think about this. To this day, to this day, how many buildings do you go and see around the world that are built in the neoclassical style that are structured after, like, Roman stuff? The amount, like, the cap, like, the, the different buildings in the All U.S. capital. Washington, D.C.? Yeah, that's the idea. All of it harkens back to Rome. And for a thousand years past the fall of the Western Roman Empire, leading all the way into the Byzantines and their fall, people adhere to Rome. With the destruction of them, there was no more Rome. The Byzantines were Roman? Yes, they, I mean, it was the Eastern Roman Empire. It was the, it was the okay, continuation of Rome. I actually watched some interesting videos on this, and I think a lot of people argue over that. They do, a lot. But the reality was, is that it was the Roman, for the, up until it collapsed, they never called themselves the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire was a naming invention of like, I think the 17th or 18th century. Just to give a distinction between the two. Yes, because Byzantine in and of itself refers to something that is like outdated and what's the proper word? It was like not only outdated, but sluggish, decrepit, inefficient. Like That's if, what they called it? If you say Byzantine bureaucracy, you are calling something horribly like you would go to an office. Let's say that right now you went to a county clerk's office to go to like the DMV. And they have no computers. Everything in there is typewriters and so you filing mean cabinets. Our county's county clerk office? No, not exactly ours. Ours is a little bit older, but I'm talking about even more decrepit. I would still call it a Byzantine bureaucracy. Fair, but you get my point, though. That's what they would <laughs> do. do. That's that's why they referred to it as that. That's so sad. the The idea that came out of this was. Um, there's this old adage when it came to imperial authority, and you see the same thing in China. The Latin term is translatio imperi, which means the transfer of rule or authority. And there's this idea with great empires is that when an empire is conquered or destroys or fall apart, that this is something that its will, its idea, its something is transferred to something else. So when the Roman Empire fell, just like when the Chinese Empire or any dynasty would fall, the question was not, okay, well, what do we do now? It's, okay, well, who's the next one? What is the next empire? What is the next Rome? What is the next China? What is the next this? It's the idea of there's this universal idea of an empire. What is going to take over and become the next representation of that? Didn't Benito Mussolini try to bring back the Roman Empire yep. during World War II? Correct. Nice. Uh, we were gonna, we'll talk about this in this. This was a huge aspect. Russia referred to itself, like the Empire of Russia referred to itself as the Third Rome. They but they're nowhere near. Oh, God. The, see, that's a whole thing. In it. Do you have any idea how many places called themselves the New Roman Empire? I'm going to call our little tiny city the New Rome. What are they going to do to stop me? Well, you'll have much claim as pretty much any other force that ever tried to do so. Not much. Why so does everyone this. want to become Rome? I mean, an Rome idea. was it was great. I understand it was an idea, but everybody has this idealized version of what Rome was. And if Rome was that great, it would have never fallen the way that it did. 
It wasn't a matter of it falling, Gabby. It's the fact that the power, the prestige, the idea, the control, the the political ramifications of Rome are so massive that in if you control Rome, if you are Rome, if people acknowledge you as Rome, then that means that the other powers around you will fall okay. into line. They will New become idea. subservient. New idea. I'm going to run for president of the United States. Oh, God, please. Wait, hold up. Where are you going with this? <laughs> Where are you going Once with this? Once I am president of the United States, I will rename myself president of the United States of Rome. Thank you. The new Roman Empire is going to be my, like, campaign platform. Gabby? What? I don't know how to tell you this. What? But do you have any idea how many people have actually thought that from the whole idea of the Renovato Imperii, that the idea of, like, that trans like transfer of authority that transfer of power that we talked about right do you have any idea how many people have talked about even your own father in the literature that he has read and referred to the gradual transition of power that it goes from rome to like the holy roman empire goes to the french goes to the british empire as the representation and continuation of old roman authority which then get transferred to the new mantle is America. America is, in fact, the true man, like the true inheritors of Rome's legacy. Perfect. My campaign slogan, the true inheritors of Rome. God, God. Who's not going to vote for the me? amount of Come Europeans on. that could potentially be listening to this that are just like seething inside <laughs> I'm so of their sorry. like anyone. Please, no, I'm literally using this any, as a moment to shit post. Any Do European driving a car right now, just all, they, like also, their hands on the wheel, tightening. I truly cannot be president of the United States. I wasn't born here, so again, <laughs> I'm just joking. But what if I did? It's for the memes, guys. Come on, imagine yep. the memes. So it's again, it's funny. The Turks, who had conquered Rome here at this point, they declared themselves to be the like the Sultanate of Rum. That was the idea. The Turkish name of Rome was Rum. So that's what they did. You are laughing at me right now, but that's what they did of Rum. Stop laughing at me right now. I can see you looking at you're just like you're silent snorting right now, and I do not appreciate this. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't laugh at you, babe. Uh-huh. Can you say it again? Rum. <laughs> see here's the funny thing you laugh at that and your response is how the majority of europe looked at it too and we're back okay so the the whole story the whole idea of this there was that there's um i don't even begin to phrase this there there has been a long-standing dream an idea of inheriting the empire so to speak that is very influential within russian history so as an example of this russia received its faith Orthodox Christianity from Constantinople. It was the Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And this kind of spiritual and historical link was expressed in the idea of Russia being like the third Rome. So almost immediately after Constantinople fell, Russian monks were then going and announcing to the Tsar or the Emperor of Moscow that the first Rome had fallen, which was the actual city of Rome in Italy. Now Constantinople second Rome had fallen as well, which meant that the power of Muscovy would be the third, the eternal Rome, the Rome that would never fall. That was like the spiritual idea of it because they were the direct continuation of that religious. I don't even know what to call it. Like that was their destiny, so to speak. And then, of course, the marriage of Tsar Ivan the third 
to the niece of the last Byzantine emperor was intended to strengthen this claim. And so that idea of the third Rome then became this whole messianic kind of fervor that would endure for literally centuries. After all, if you go and look at it, the, uh, the Russian coat of arms, as an example, like when you look at the Russian empire, it shows the double-headed eagle. That double-headed eagle specifically was the emblem of the Byzantine Empire that they adopted because Rome, because reasons. And that desire to, quote, be the third Rome would lead to all kinds of impacts on Russian foreign policy as they were always, always trying to capture Constantinople, or as they refer to it in Russian, Tsargrad, which was like Caesar's city. There was even this whole case where, um, where Napoleon was talking about all of his conquests and how, oh, he was going to go and he was going to conquer all the stuff in, uh, in Asia Minor. And Russia, which was Napoleon's like good friend and ally, so to speak, they were like, okay, well, we, we, we will get Constantinople, right? To which Napoleon was like, no. Nope, because that's not exactly how conquest worked at all. Even when you look at other ideas of other nations, that would call themselves Rome, there were so many more. Uh, I mean, we already talked about the Ottomans, that they tried to call themselves the Sultanate of Rome. You have Russia. You have the Holy Roman Empire, as it was called in the Middle Ages, declaring itself to be the successor to Rome. And then even going into the later ages, like in the 20th century, you had Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, both of which would adhere to ideas of Rome. So this is going to sound weird, but Gabby, remember the whole Nazi salute thing and how it's like, you know, to the chest and then out. And obviously I'm not going to do it immediately in front of you, even though people obviously I've can't see it. I've never seen it, but I know like of, of it because somebody thought a dog had to do it. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the picture, like the final form of it, right? Even if you don't know yeah, the full thing. I didn't know there was more to it. Yeah. So it's the actual action where they would go to the chest and then go and they raise their hand outward. Um, that whole salute, that is the, it came from Rome. Like that was the idea behind the Roman salute. And that is what the Nazis had adopted at their time. Because I mean, Hitler's dream was to create the third Reich. It wasn't referring to in this case of the third Rome. This was supposed to be the third German empire, but it was supposed to be the true successor and superpower to all of that. Mussolini himself would fill every aspect of his reign in Italy with just images of Rome. That was the key thing that he focused on is that it was a revival of the Roman Empire. Finally, though, despite the power vacuum, despite the claims to fame, what everyone wanted for the ideas of Rome, the other massive impact that the fall of Constantinople was going to have, as again, I've talked about many times in other podcast episodes that we've done, is that its fall would directly lead to a the Renaissance, which was already something that was ongoing, but it helped spur more revivals more into it and simultaneously spurred massive trade. Difference. Wait, difference is not the right word. What is the word that I'm looking for in that case? It completely changed how Europeans were looking at things for trade, that they were no longer wanting to go through the Middle East, through the middlemen of Asia. They wanted to find a route around Africa. They wanted to go westward in order to get trade with the Orient because now 
the Ottomans and any other Islamic power that was in there was going to be able to charge whatever they wanted for goods. And that did not sit well with European merchants. They didn't want that. And also, of course, they could have just been completely barred at any given time and not able to do anything. So that in turn leads to Christopher Columbus. In 1492, sailed the ocean blue. Yada, yada, yada. Did a whole bunch of other horrible stuff and to his dying day, continued to think that he had actually found the Indies like he, he had found Indonesia. But uh, no, no, that's not what happened. Whole new world was discovered. The fall of Constantinople directly led to the discovery of the new world. I mean, it probably would have happened later at some point anyway, but it, this definitely spurred it to happen when it did. But in the end, if you want to know more, you're going to have to look at, at it further in the book, which, again, is linked in the description down below. And I highly recommend that you do get it. As Gabby had said earlier, it is on sale for $2.99 right now, and that is only for a limited time. We always love looking at the deep dives of these topics, and there's just simply so much more to talk about. Way, way too much for any kind of conversation that we could have on this podcast. Honestly, I, I would probably I, I would probably say that if I wanted to talk in depth about everything that is in this book, by the end, Gabby would be locked up here in an insane, insane asylum because of just being driven to madness from how much I would have to talk about. Could also probably double as torture in that sense. All right, and before we go, uh, we have this week's listener story that has been sent in to us. So, dear Stakuyi and Gabby, first-time listener, long-time caller. Sorry, I always wanted to say that. I don't demand or expect you to read this on the air. Well, I am, so go figure. That's exactly what is happening. That decision I put to you to decide, well, I decided it, and I wanted to reach out to you both in reaction to the last rant video Stack uploaded when some Jack Wagon felt the urge to comment on your daughter's name origin. Ah, yeah, yeah, that, that was a... That was a rather interesting thing to occur. Alas, real and imagined personal attacks are the cross one must bear when in public eye, whether one is a YouTuber or head of state. It's true. Now, to my family history. My parents, who also had trouble conceiving, and my mother suffered several miscarriages as well, so much so that they ended up adopting my older sister. Months after that adoption was finalized, guess what happened? Ah, that's when you came into the picture. So fast forward about 30 years and I wake from a nap while my parents and I are visiting my sister at a state and imagine my befuddlement to find everyone in tears because apparently my sister had aired out all of her emotional laundry to my parents while I was sleeping. We came to find out that my sister had had two abortions. Oh, wow. Okay. Which none of us knew anything about. The stance on the subject is irrelevant here. She had fled from Florida and her then boyfriend to escape drug addiction which explained why we didn't hear a word from her for almost two years. The real kicker came when we learned that my sister had been contacted by her biological father that they had actually met. He's from Venezuela and all places. Oh, oh he was of, from Venezuela of all places and was studying in my home state for college. If I recall correctly, it was at the end of the semester and he had to return home when he got that note on his door. For years, he was in contact with the county to see if it was possible to locate and get in contact with my sister. It took about 20-odd years, but they did eventually meet. My parents and I have met him as well, and he's a really cool guy. Now my sister has two girls, aged three and one. My story may not hold a history buff's interest, but it does, in my opinion, show the ups and downs of parenthood and life and what it lacks for historical relevance it makes up for in personal connection. I can sit here and tell you guys not to take those rare occurrences of 
douchebaggery in the comment section to heart. But as a man who is neither a father or a husband, it's easier for me to stand by on my soapbox and pontificate to others. A philosopher is a man who knows what to do until it happens to them. In closing, I've been really enjoying the podcast and I've been catching up on past episodes while I make some sewing projects. I'm a Civil War reenactor and the sewing projects involve lots and lots of sewing and painting. The podcast help. Hey, good to know that we've managed to contribute something. I've attached a photo of myself from the Battle of Cedar Mountain in Virginia for my last year. Take care and be excellent, my friends. Ah, I see you there, man. You got a nice beard. Oh, you even went for the old style. Ah, ah. No one else can really see what it is that I'm looking at here right now, but uh, he, he's got the old um, the, the mutton chop like beard. Very nice. Very nice. Very good for Civil War. I appreciate you, my friend. Everyone, thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope that you have a good rest of your day. I will see you all next time and goodbye.